Well, welcome everybody. Welcome to lesson number eight in Master Plan for Life, which is page 71 in your notebooks. And those of you that are on live stream, if you want to make your presence known, do that with the chat feature. And just let us know you're present by live stream. Welcome to you as well. If you need anything, live stream folks, since I don't get to see you, then uh, let us know. Send something via chat, or if you're not able to operate that, shoot a text to our engineer, our technical engineer, which is Julie Castle, and that would be 313-737-9358, right? Okay. So shoot her a text, let her know what you need, including if you don't have notes or any of that, we'll make arrangements to get those to you. This is Lesson 8, page 71, and you look on the upper right-hand corner, it says Doctrine of the Bible. The last two weeks... We've been looking at the doctrine of the Bible, and I'll talk about what we've covered quickly, and then we'll get into the content of tonight's lesson. But Master Plan for Life has these two major parts. We're in part one, which is answering the question, who am I? Part two will answer the question, why am I here? To answer that question in part one, who am I? It's got five sections, the doctrine of God, doctrine of the Bible, Doctrine of Humanity and Sin, Doctrine of Christ, and then the Doctrine of Salvation. By the time we get done with that, we will have a full answer to the question, uh, who am I? And then we'll go to part two, why am I here? So we looked at the Doctrine of God. We had five lessons on that. Now we're looking at God's communication to us in, in Revelation, in His making Himself known. And we saw two weeks ago in the first lesson of the doctrine of the Bible, that he's made himself known two ways, general revelation and then special revelation. General revelation is making himself known with general information to a general audience. That would be everybody through creation and through conscience. But then special revelation is God speaking or using uh, intermediaries to communicate his message. We saw in that lesson that in the past, he's done that a lot of ways, through visions to the prophets, through angels, through direct address to individuals. But now he has sent Christ. And Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1 says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers at, at various times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son. So Christ is the focus of God's revelation to, to us now. And Christ we saw, uh, commissioned special agents, his apostles, to communicate his message. And so they are responsible for the writing or the overseeing of the writing of your New Testament. So God speaks to us now through Christ's Word in Scripture. And we have the Old Testament, we have the New Testament. Last week we saw that God's Word is preserved, that God's Word is complete, that God's Word is in inspired. And now, tonight, we're going to look at the fact that the Bible is both human and divine, that it has human authors and it has God as the ultimate author behind Scripture, and then see how that affects the way we go about interpreting the Bible. The fact that every book of the Bible has two authors, a human author, and then you have, you have God behind it. So last week, at the end of the lesson, we made the point that because... God used, employed human beings in the process of giving his, his word. That means that when you read the Bible, it's got the kind of stuff you would expect. It's got human language. It's got uh, human, uh, human personality reflected in it for the different authors, and they're not the same. So Peter's writings are not the same as Paul's writing style. Same thing with the Apostle John. They're different. So even though God is the one ensuring that what they wrote is what He wanted written, God is not mechanically dictating it so that it's all a sort of God style. Rather, it's a Peter style, a John style, and a Paul style, and, and all of that. So you have the human element very prominent, and yet God behind it. So we made a big deal about that at the end of lesson number seven, that the Bible is composed of these human elements, and therefore it's to be interpreted as you interpret any human communication. And tonight we want to explore that further. So tonight we're looking at principles of biblical interpretation. And one of the, one of the truths that will affect how we do that 
is this issue of both God and the human author. I'll talk about that some more in just a bit. So page 71, if you look at the top, in lesson 7 it was shown that the Bible has both divine and human authors. That is, although God is the source of the Scriptures, man composed it. God has providentially superintended the production, the compilation, and the preservation of the Bible in order to communicate His message to mankind. The successful communication of any message, whether from God or man, always requires interpretation. Interpretation is the process that allows us to understand the author's intended meaning. So here's the big idea for this whole lesson in the box you have there. The goal of the reading study process is to understand the author's intended, the author's intended meaning. Now, we say that every interpretation, uh, every communication requires interpretation. Right now I'm communicating to you and you're interpreting what I'm saying. Now we're going to see in a, in a bit that you're not thinking about, you may not be thinking about what I'm saying, but, but you're definitely not thinking about interpreting what I'm saying because you just sort of automatically do it. But there's a reason with the Bible it doesn't just automatically happen. You actually have to think about how you, how you go about it. But for now, just just accept the idea, just take as a given, and then I think we'll prove that all communication, what I'm doing right now, any communication you've had today, talking with others, reading anything from a magazine, watching something on television, that's all involved communication, and every time there's communication, there's also interpretation of that, of that communication. So, let's, uh, let me beat on this idea then of how the two authors, God and the human author, affects the way we view interpreting God's communication in, in Scripture. You know, in one sense, because the Bible is this human communication with all these human elements, human language, human personality, all of that, because it is all of that, then it is like a newspaper, it is like reading a magazine, a novel, but <clears throat> the one big difference is that those have, those have one author. Uh, this, has, this has two authors. Every book, all 66 of the Bible, has two authors, the human author and God. So here's the question. Whose meaning, when you try to interpret, whose meaning are you trying to get? You're trying to get God's meaning or Moses' meaning? God's meaning or David's? God meaning, God's meaning or Jeremiah's? God's meaning or Matthew's or Paul's or Peter's or whoever? Whose meaning are you trying to get? And if you get your answer to that, is going to determine whether or not you come up with a kind of funky interpretive approach or you take a proper approach. <clears throat> Here's what we need to understand. That with Scripture, because the human authors wrote what God wanted written, remember that? Remember last week when we said the Bible is inspired and that means that God superintended so that the human authors wrote what He wanted? Well, that being the case, then, if you've got Paul's meaning, guess whose meaning you also have? God's. If you've got Moses' meaning, you've got God's. If you've got Jeremiah's, you've got God's. Which means now, here's the good news. <laughs> you can interpret the Bible like Moses is talking to you. Like Paul is talking to you. Like I'm talking to you. You can interpret it as normal human communication, all the while knowing that God was behind the production of it. But here's what happens. A lot of people in church history, a lot of people today, tend to focus on the God side of biblical revelation, and that results in these faulty interpretive methods because they're focusing on the uniqueness of the Bible. And it is unique in that it has God behind it. But they're focusing on that uniqueness for their interpretation rather than the commonalities that the Bible has with all communication. Human personality, human language, all of that. They focus on the unique piece, which is God behind it. So what they want to do is they want to try to find the God meaning. So you have people, let me give you examples. You have people who interpret the Bible using things like numerology. So they find like messages in the, you know, the various numbers in, in the Bible. I mean, I've, I've heard you know, preachers do this kind of thing. You know, he, 
in, in Psalm 118, I think it is, has the middle verse in the, in the Bible. Psalm 118, I think it is Psalm 118. Uh, but anyway, one of the Psalms has the middle verse. Not that I care what the middle verse is, because it has no significance <laughs> to anything. But it was significant for you know, some preacher and some teachers, and people think, wow, that's interesting. The middle verse of the Bible says whatever. Well, it, it's, that's a, kind of an esoteric way of coming up with some meaning, that it's, it's in the middle. And guess what? When it was originally written, there weren't any verses to begin with. So God didn't intend for the middle verse to mean anything because he didn't give us the verses. <laughs> we came up with the verses after the fact, centuries later, just so we could find stuff. The verses weren't even, weren't even there. 1 John 5, 7, 1 John 5, 7 in your Bible is a short verse, just one line, and it's a line that clearly, we talked about manuscript evidence last week, clearly uh, a guy named Erasmus added that line. He clearly added that line. And so there's a verse, 1 John 5, 7, that isn't even really a verse. So that messes up your middle verse <laughs> thing. So the whole middle verse numerology idea is just is one way that people are trying to get at a sort of mystical way of getting to God's meaning. Another one is this, allegory. So a lot of people see, and a lot of preaching and teaching does this, it allegorizes what's in the Bible. That everything you see in the Bible is representing something else. It's, the Bible is just one big book of symbols. And you've got to figure it out. So, you know, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, and Jesus says that the rich man died and he's in, uh, and he's in, he's in hell. And, you know, Lazarus had previously begged for the crumbs from the rich man's table. Remember all that? I mean, I've heard sermons where the legs on the table represent something, the crumbs represent something, all of that. And this is, that's what you do when you take that kind of allegorical approach. Uh, the Jordan River and the crossing of the Jordan River into the Promised Land. Well, the Jordan River then represents the victorious Christian life, say, lots of allegorical people. You know what the Jordan River represents in the Bible? Pretty much. <laughs> that would be it, yeah. You know, my wife and I, years ago, we went to a marriage retreat, and the guy who was doing the marriage retreat was talking about how you can rekindle uh, a Christian marriage retreat, and how you can rekindle romance in your, in your marriage. And, you know, he said to think about, you know, how, how, Christ, how Christ wooed you into relationship with Him, and remember that. So that'll, and I'm thinking, you know, you know what, that, that is just not going to work. We're talking about two, two different kinds of relationship here, here. So this allegory, and he did this from Ephesians chapter 5, Christ loved the church. You love your wife. Christ loved the church, you love your wife, so... We can, we can make an equivalence out of, out of this. Here's another one. You've got numerology, you've got allegory. Just deeper meaning. Just, it's not necessarily symbolizing, but you're just finding a deeper meaning in, in everything than what's just on the, on the surface there. Uh, equidistant letter sequencing. That's actually a thing. There was a book uh, years ago written called The Bible Code. I, I have it on my shelf, The Bible Code. And I, I have it just because I love to have some books that just show how you're not supposed to do stuff. And The Bible Code is the way you're not supposed to do it. Okay? But this equidistant letter sequencing is the idea of you know how you play a game where you say find words that are backwards or diagonal and you're trying to circle them. You see it, right? That's what they're, that's what they're doing with the... So, but the equidistant piece is, you know, I can find a message by every second letter going backwards. So this Bible code book made a big splash because doing that kind of crazy thing, it ended up supposedly predicting the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin, who was an Israeli prime minister, uh, by using this, this kind of thing. So God has this message in there if we just can figure out how to, how to decode, the, decode the Bible. John MacArthur tells the story of how people preach this way with this, you know, just deeper meaning idea. And he says, you know, the way a lot of people use the Bible, you could just, you could preach anything. I mean, you could, it doesn't have to be the Bible, you could just take anything and then make up whatever message you want to make up. He said, so you could preach a little Bo Peep. 
I have heard him say this. You can preach little Bo Peep. He goes, he goes, can't you see a preacher doing this? You know, little Bo Peep. And, you know, she was little. You feel small today? <laughs> you know, and then uh, she, had a, she had a sad life. Her name was Bo. <laughs> Do you have a sad life? Do you have sad things happen to you? And on top of all of that, she lost her sheep. Have you ever lost anything? You know, so little Bo Peep, and then it just goes. And I'm telling you, you can find preaching that just kind of kind of goes that way. I had a friend, and unfortunately we're not friends anymore because of what I'm, I'm going to tell you. When I was in high school, I had a friend who, uh, Christian guy, I was in his wedding. Uh, I was the best man in his wedding. He is now uh, an evangelist, has been for about 40 years since we got out of high school. He's an evangelist. He actually has quite an itinerary, has for four decades. Goes around the country, speaks at churches. <coughs> sometimes large conferences. And the preaching that John does is the craziest stuff you've ever seen. I mean, John is just making stuff up. He's making stuff up from the Bible. But it's, it's what he, he learned. And I saw that early on. And I didn't have a whole lot of discernment myself in those, in those years, but I saw this is, not, this is not right. In those early years, I was on his mailing list and he sent out a little newsletter. And in the newsletter, he always had like a little devotional from Scripture. And uh, one of them had a devotion from John, or excuse me, Genesis chapter 6. In Genesis chapter 6 in the King James, it says, In those days, there were, there were giants in the land, men of renown. That's what it says. In those days, there were giants in the land, men of renown. John said, or Genesis says. And then John says, uh, in, right in the newsletter, now can I spiritualize this? Now you know what he means when he says, can I spiritualize this? He means I'm going to take this out of its context and I'm going to have it mean something that it doesn't mean in Genesis chapter 6. I'm going to spiritualize it. And so he says, we need giants today. We need spiritual giants in the church today. People who will stand up for truth and all that. I mean, that's all true. But Genesis 6 has absolutely nothing to do with, with any of that. But, and, and John has been preaching that way for four decades. And if you were outside the circle of a church like ours, and you went to, this is a Baptist church, you went to Baptist churches outside, you'd see plenty of that kind of thing. Here's a guy named Jack Hiles. Anybody know that name, Jack Hiles? He's dead now, but... He had this gigantic church in Hammond, Indiana for decades, First Baptist of Hammond, started a Bible college that he humbly named Hiles, <laughs> Hiles Anderson. When I was in high school, I went to a Christian high school, I'm in ninth grade, we're in the last week of school, I'm in a study hall, and for some reason in the study hall there was this senior gal who was normally not in there, but she had to kill an hour and she was in our study hall. And I happened to be sitting next to her. I was talking to her about what she was going to do after she graduated. And she says, well, I'm going to go to college where I'm going to go to Hiles Anderson. I never heard, I, I didn't know what it was. It's a Christian school in Indiana. This gal's name was Anderson. And I quipped, I go, you're going to, you're going to a college that's got your name in it. And she goes, yeah, that's my dad. Her dad is a guy named Russell Anderson, and Russell Anderson was a wealthy guy from Ypsilanti, Michigan, who gave the money to build that thing, and this was his, this was his daughter. So anyway, Hiles. John, this friend of mine who's been, a, who's been a, uh, an evangelist for 40 years, learned his style of preaching from Jack Hiles and all of Jack Hiles' acolytes. And there are thousands of them around the country pastoring churches. So Jack Hiles has got a sermon... Just about any Jack Hiles sermon is just what I've been describing. But he's got one from Genesis chapter 1 and verse 16. Genesis 1, 16. I have it in a book on my shelf, again for the reason I gave. I like to have proof of stuff that you're not supposed to do. Genesis 1, 16. Now, Genesis chapter 1, you guys know what that is, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And on the first day and evening and the morning were the first day, evening and the morning. And this is all about stuff God's creating. And you might remember that God created the greater light to rule the day, that is the sun, and the lesser light to rule the night, that is the moon. And then verse 16, Genesis 1.16 says this. That's all it says, the whole verse. 
and he made the stars also. That's all, of, that's all it says. Now, could you get a sermon out of that? Just that verse, and he made the stars also? Jack Hiles did. And this is how he did. He has three points to his sermon. He goes, God cares about little people. You don't have to be the big light. You can be just a little light. God cares about the stars. God cares about little people. God cares about little places. And then he goes on about that, and, it, and he, he can womp up the crowd like nothing you've, you've ever heard. And then he's got a third point. God cares about little projects, little people, little places, little projects, all from Genesis 1.16, and he made the stars also. Always some kind of deeper meaning. Now, what the people who do this say is often true. That is, God does care about little people, and God does care about little places, and God does care about little projects. It's just it doesn't come from the passage that they're gleaning it from. So what happens then with a steady exposure of years to that kind of preaching and teaching? People learn a way to approach the Bible, a wrong way to approach the Bible. So instead of learning how to put something in its context as God intended the meaning, which is what we're saying here, instead of that, what you come away with is a, an appreciation of the cleverness of the preacher. And people come away going, man, can that guy get a lot out of a verse? Yeah, it's because he made it up. I mean, I can get a lot out of a verse too if I just want to make it up. So, that is the result of thinking that there's some deeper, higher, above the page, above the human elements meaning. What we want to do is we want to get Paul's meaning. We want to get Moses' meaning. We want to get David's meaning. And when we get that, then we've got God's meaning. All right, back to page 71. Interpretation is not often given sufficient consideration because... Most interpretation occurs instantly without conscious thought. That's what I was saying a bit ago. You guys are interpreting right now, but you're not having to think about interpreting. You're just doing it. So, uh, if I say to you, and here's why, you can do it. You can do it because the messages, you see this next thing, this is because most messages we receive are contemporary and local. Contemporary, same time. We're living at the same time. Local, in the same place. If you live at the same time in the same place, then you can read or hear words and phrases, and you can generally know what they mean because they're coming from somebody same place and time as you are, right? So if I say uh, on Sunday, this coming Sunday, uh, if I were to see you in the afternoon and I say, uh, the Lions won today, you would know what I'm talking about, wouldn't you? On a Sunday afternoon, <laughs> yeah, one. I say, what, what would you, what would you think? And and you would think I'm lying. That's what. Because <laughs> what are we? Zero and eight right now, I think. But we, you know, I'm talking about a football team because we got a local football team named the Lions, and they play on Sundays, right? So you wouldn't have to think about that. Now, if you are in Rome, two thousand years ago, and you say the Lions won today, what's that mean? Somebody got you know, the, the Christians had a bad day of it, right? The same phrase means something completely different depending on the context. But because we're at the same time, same place, we know, we know generally what we're, we're talking about. I mean, here's, a, here's another example of that. Shows how weird, this example shows how weird I am. But Kim and I were not even married yet when this happened. We were dating, and I used to pick up for the church that I was going to, that she started to go to with me, I used to pick up some el a couple elderly ladies. So I have these uh, elderly ladies in my back seat. Kim's in the, in the front seat with me. I pick them up, and I'm going down their street, their, their residential street, and a guy just like walks out in front of my car. Now, thankfully, I didn't hit him, but I said... Whoa, did you, did you see that? I almost hit that cat. I used the word cat. 
Now, Cat hadn't been current probably for 30 years at that point. <laughs> but for some reason, I, I was saying that. I said, I almost hit that cat. And the, and the old ladies in the back said, oh, the poor kitty. <laughs> they, you see, context, context matters, right? They didn't see. They think I'm talking about. So context, we're going to see, is everything in interpretation. So you look at the middle of that second paragraph. As a result, we automatically, as a result of the fact that we're contemporary and local, we automatically understand the author's intended meaning because we're familiar with the circumstances, the customs, the language, and other factors involved in communication. The Bible, however, was written in the past. Therefore, we must work to consciously apply principles that we unconsciously use every day. But here's the thing, guys and gals, they're not different principles. The same ones you're using as I'm talking are the same principles we're going to see that you use with the Bible. It's just you've got to think about it with the Bible. Whereas you don't have to think about it when you are contemporary and local. And we're going to see what those, those principles are. The proper method of interpretation is called literal or normal communication. You should use and prefer normal. We're going to see in this lesson that the Bible uses figures of speech, for example. And figures of speech, by definition, are not to be taken literally then. How do you know if it's a figure of speech? By the context. Context rules. So sometimes people say, so you think the Bible is literally true? Well, I believe everything the Bible affirms is true, literally so. But not everything in the Bible was designed to be taken literally. And so that's why I prefer to say we take a normal approach to interpretation. The consistent application of the principles of normal application will yield consistent interpretations. The reason varying interpretations of the Bible's message exist is that all do not play by the same rules. So, you know, people say, man, that's just your... No, everybody's got their own interpretation of the Bible. Well, yeah, because people are doing the kind of stuff that I talked about. If you'll take the Bible and you'll put the thing in context, then it doesn't have all kinds of possible, possible meanings. So, if you use these normal principles of interpretation, it's going to yield consistent interpretations of what the scriptures, scriptures say. There are not numerous different kinds of interpretations for every passage like a lot of people, a lot of people suggest. So this is similar. Let me give you an illustration. You guys are familiar with the Supreme Court, our Supreme Court, and you know that our Supreme Court for a living, guess what those men and women do? They interpret. They interpret a document. And they interpret an old document. Now, it's not 2,000 years old, but it's a couple hundred. So they have to consciously think about, how are we going to do this? And just like with the Bible, people bring different sets of rules to the thing. You know, you got the numerology people and the deeper meaning people and the allegory people. You got the same kind of thing with the, with the court. Now, if you don't follow the court a whole lot, then that is probably good because that means you have a life. But, but, but if you do follow it a little bit, you know, you, you know that in the popular news, the way it comes off by the politicians is, you know, you have Republican judges and you got Democrat judges. Well, that's not quite the way it is. You've got justices that were nominated by a Republican president. The president nominates Supreme Court justices, and some nominated by Democrats. But their rulings and their interpretation are Republican rulings or Democrat rulings. Now, what they are, though, is they have different interpretive approaches. And a Republican might favor one interpretive approach because it tends to favor Republican policies if you go that route, and likewise for the, for the Democrats. So one of the guys on the Supreme Court is, uh, is Stephen Breyer. Stephen Breyer was nominated in the 90s by Bill Clinton 
And he takes a particular approach to interpreting the Constitution. Antonin Scalia, who died a couple of years ago, suddenly, uh, he had a completely different approach. In fact, I love watching, if you ever you know, are bored, YouTube, Scalia and, and Breyer, and these two guys talking about how they interpret. And they're good friends, but it's, it's funny to watch and enlightening as well. So a guy like Scalia takes an approach, took an approach to the Constitution that says, I want to know what it originally meant. And so he was called an originalist. He takes an originalist interpretation. What did it originally mean? A guy like Breyer says, no, we got to know what it means today. It could mean something different today than it meant then. So sometimes that's called a loose construction approach. An originalist approach is sometimes approximated with a strict constructionist approach. Anyway, there's lots of names for this. But the difference is, are you putting in its original context, or can it mean something different today? So here's an article where uh, the author talks about the difference in approach. And he says, you know, the Supreme Court, the question is, should the Supreme Court consider changing times and current realities in applying the principles of the Constitution, as opposed to only considering the original intentions of the authors of the Constitution? Unlike defenders of original understanding, like a Scalia, the supporters of, and here's what they call it, the living Constitution, now you get that phrase, living constitution. Why? Because it's, it's growing over time. The meaning is evolving, is the idea. The living constitution. They have not been able to agree on a clear interpretive approach. They've got two principles that they try to use. One is that we should reject rigid originalism, viewing the constitution as containing unwavering values instead and apply it flexibly to ever-changing circumstances. And then the second one is that we should take account of the role of other governmental institutions and the relationships among them, and that's the kind of approach that Breyer takes to the Constitution. Now, that's a mouthful that's just saying that he's not putting it, and admittedly not putting it, in its original context. And he's asking other questions about what it means today and taking a living Constitution approach. That's roughly equivalent to what a lot of people do with the Bible. Their goal is not what we have in the box on page 71, to understand the author's intended meaning. That would be an originalist approach to the Bible. We want to know what it originally meant. But if you don't take that, then you can come up with all kinds of, all kinds of things. Like, here we are, 2021. We've got a case before the Supreme Court right now out of Mississippi. It's going to be decided next year, an abortion case. 2021, we're still having to deal with the abortion thing since 1973 and the Roe v. Wade decision. When the Roe v. Wade decision came down, you had a nine-person Supreme Court, like we have now, but it was dominated by living Constitution people. And that's why you had a 7-2 to two majority in favor of saying that the Constitution guarantees a right, the Constitution guarantees a right to abortion. And since 1973, that's been the case. Now next year, I think that that stands a good chance of being overturned. We'll see. But it's been a long haul. Now where did in 1973, seven of nine justices find a constitutional right to an abortion. I mean, you can read the Constitution, it doesn't take very long. And it's got the right to free speech and the right to assembly, freedom of religion, it's got all of these things in it. But you're not gonna find a right to abortion, a constitutional right to abortion. So, so where do you get it? Well, here's where it, here's where it came from. It, it came from, um, this is the decision, the decision Roe v. Wade was based on a right to privacy that's in the Constitution, they say. 
Now, if you read the Constitution, guess what you won't find? You won't find that either. So where do you get the right to privacy? Here's the phrase. I'm quoting. The right to privacy comes from penumbras formed by emanations from the First Amendment. That's a quote. Penumbras formed by emanations from the First Amendment. I had to look up penumbra. Shadow. The right to, the right to privacy comes from shadows. The shadows are formed by emanations. Emanations derived from. Shadows that are derived from the First Amendment. And then the right to abortion is based upon the right to privacy that's based on penumbras formed by emanations from it. Okay? So you see, if you don't have rules around how you interpret, you can go just about anywhere, can't you? Clarence Thomas is on the Supreme Court. He's an originalist. He, I'm told, has a little plaque on his desk. When you walk in, you see this little thing on his desk that says, please do not emanate on my penumbras. <laughs> All right, so here's what we want to see that all communication has three kinds of context, historical and literary and grammatical. Now, you guys see context. Remember I said context is king. We're going we're gonna to pound that home. Context determines meaning. Context determines meaning. And context is historical context, literary context, and grammatical context. Now, many of us have the mistaken notion, I think, that the way you determine the meaning of a word is in the dictionary. That the dictionary determines the meaning. But see, it's not really correct because when you look for a word in a dictionary, normally you have more than one possible meaning, don't you? You might have three, you might have five. Now why might you have three or five? Because that word can mean different things in different what? Contexts. And what the lexicographer, that's, that's what a dictionary maker is, a lexicographer. And what the lexicographer does is they don't, make, they don't assign the meaning. Nobody gave somebody the power to determine what the meanings are. What they do is record the way words are used in different contexts. And that's why you might have one or two or five different meanings for the same word at a given time. It's also why dictionaries get updated, because the way a word is used can change over time. It's the reason that the King James Version needs to be updated, because the way you use English changes over time. I mean, you've got words in the, in the King James that mean exactly the opposite of the way we use literally the opposite. The King James uses the word let, L-E-T. When we say, you know, let the dog out, what's that mean? Permit the dog to go outside, right? Let. No, at, at the time of the King James, let meant to hinder. The exact opposite of permit. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, only he, this is what it says in the King James, only he that now letteth will let. And it's only he that now hinders the evil one from coming will continue to hinder that from happening. But you know, how are you ever gonna get how are you ever gonna get that? I was reading in a, a pastoral, pastoral magazine years ago, and they were it was a it was a funny article, and it was saying, hey, if you if you run out of time to prepare for your sermon some week, then preach from the King James. Because it'll take you ten minutes to explain what bowels of mercies means. <laughs> or some of these archaic things. And it's really, I mean, it's true. I mean, I, I, I have preached at other churches that use the King James, and they want you to use the King James. So I got some sermon. I'm not making a new sermon generally. I've got a bunch of sermons, so I take one I've had. But now I'm using the King James. And I'm telling you, it's like having to write a whole new sermon from the same passage because of how archaic the, the language is. So that's the way language is. Dictionaries don't assign meaning. They don't determine meaning. They simply record meaning. Context is everything. A text without a context is a pretext. 
A text without a context is a pretext. If you read something but don't put it in its context, then what you're going to do is use that as a pretext to say what you want. All right. First, bottom of page 71, all communication has a historical context. Every book of the Bible was written at a particular time, in a particular place, for a particular purpose. These and similar factors make up what we mean by historical context. So, first, interpret every biblical text in light of its purposes. Every author seeks to accomplish a purpose through his writing. His selection of those to whom he would write, the theme of his writing, his tone, they're all related to his purpose. Therefore, in order to understand the text's message, it's helpful to understand what the author in, intended. So where do I get that? Well, it might be stated just very directly in the book, top of page 72. First John chapter 5, John says, here's why I wrote this book. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. There's my purpose. That's why I wrote it. just tells you. But it might be implied from other things. It might be implied from other statements within the book. You know, Paul doesn't give in Galatians, here's why I wrote it, but in the sixth verse, chapter 1, verse 6, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in, in the grace of Christ and you're turning to a different gospel. And then as you go on and read, it's clear what he's doing. He's got people in the churches in Galatia that are preaching a different gospel. And he's now challenging that. What's his purpose? It's to correct their false understanding of the gospel. Or it might be implied by what's known of the author and the recipients. You know, you've got Paul, and he wrote a couple of letters to Timothy. Well, we know something about Paul and Timothy. Paul was Timothy's mentor. Paul led Timothy to Christ, uh, apparently, because he calls himself his spiritual son in the faith. We read about that relationship in the book of Acts, so we'll get to it in a, in a few months in our, in our series in the, in the book of Acts. And so you read these letters that Paul wrote, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, you know something about Paul and Timothy from the book of Acts, and now you see what he's doing. He's preparing Timothy to take the mantle of leadership. And you read these instructions. This is an older man who's going to pass from the scene. In fact, the last book that Paul wrote in the New Testament is 2 Timothy. And the last chapter of that last book is the one where he says famously in chapter 4, the time of my departure is at hand. I have run the race. I have kept the faith. He knows he's going to be executed. But he's giving Timothy, he's passing on the baton now to Timothy. Now note, just before point B there, down at the bottom of page 72, it says, note, this point assumes that one can determine the author and or the recipients. Often these are stated in cases where they're not, a good study Bible and or commentary is, is helpful. So uh, I recommend a, a, a study Bible. There are a number of them. John MacArthur's got a study Bible, the MacArthur Study Bible, and those are nice to have because you've just got notes and you've got explanations like right there, and if it's somebody who takes seriously putting it in some context like MacArthur does, then that's a helpful thing. So the MacArthur Study Bible. I used for years the NIV Study Bible. It's one called the NIV Study Bible. It just had all kinds of just unbelievably helpful notes. So if you got that, you're going to be way ahead of the game, and at the beginning of every book, it tells you, here's who wrote it, here's who they were writing it to, here's why they were writing it. So it gives you that, that history. If you want to go a little further than that, but you, know, you don't want to get too far into the weeds, then you can get a, a two-volume, just a two-volume commentary. Uh, there's a couple of them that, that I recommend. There's the Expositor's Bible Commentary, uh, and then there is the Bible knowledge commentary. And there's two volumes, one for the New Testament, one for the Old Testament, and you get a little more than you get out of your, out of your study Bible. So conferring with something like that. Now, some people you know, say, I don't know if you've ever heard anybody say this, you know, I don't need any help. I've got the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit tells me, well, okay. You know, no, you need some help. You know, you know how I know you need some help? Because if you don't know Greek and Hebrew, you wouldn't be able to read your Bible at all. You needed somebody to put it in English for you, okay? So you need at least that help, and I recommend you get the study Bible help and the commentary help, too. All right, so interpret it uh, in light of its purpose. B, interpret every biblical text in the light of its chronology. God did not produce the Bible all at once. The Bible was composed over a 1,500-year period. In addition, the last book 
was written 1900 years ago. So in order to achieve the purpose of understanding the author's intended meaning, we want to place a given book within the time period that it was written. Often that can be determined by statements in the book regarding events and people about which dates are known. But again, a good study Bible or commentary is helpful to determine it. Here's an example of determining from statements in the, in the book itself what, um, uh, what the time period is. 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse 1. 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse 1. And it says this in 1 Kings 6, 1. It says, uh, Solomon, King Solomon, began his reign uh, 400, uh, in, the, in the fourth year of King Solomon's reign, it says, was 480 years after the Israelites came out of Egypt. Solomon began to be the king. He began to reign. His fourth year of that reign was 480 years after the Israelites came out of Egypt. So the Exodus, book of Exodus, second book in your Bible, exiting out of Egypt, Moses leading them out, right? The Red Sea, all of that. It's saying that that happened 480 years before Solomon's fourth year as king. So if you knew when Solomon became king, you could do the math. Turns out Solomon became king in 970, 970 B.C. If you do the math on that, his fourth year would be the 966 B.C. And then if you go back 480 years, you're at 1446 B.C., 15th century B.C. That's when the Exodus occurred. Now, what's helpful about that? Well, a lot of things. Remember, as part of the Exodus, Moses has to go to Pharaoh. And over and over again in the book of Exodus, he's just called Pharaoh. We're not given his name. He's just Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And, and Moses goes and says, God says, let my people go. Well, who's this Pharaoh? Well, if you know it's in the 15th century, now you can look at historical records and find out who the Pharaoh was and what was going on at, at that time. And it's very informative then for your understanding of what the book of Exodus, Exodus says. By the way, you, you guys have seen the Ten Commandments movie? And Yul Brenner is the Pharaoh? And Yul Brenner is Ramses? Ramses was Pharaoh about 200 years, 200, 300 years after when this really happened. Amenhotep, by the way, if you, he was the Pharaoh at, at the time. All right, top of page 73. Interpret every biblical text in light of its geography. Right? Do I have the right thing? Yeah? Okay, good. In light of its geography. Most Christians today live thousands of miles from the countries where Bible events took place, so we should have to become familiar a bit with the relationships between ancient sites, current boundaries. It's valuable to learn about the terrain. You've got things called Bible atlases, but this kind of stuff is explained in your study Bible or your two-volume commentary. But here's an example of that. You'll find in the Bible a lot of times it will say they went up to Jerusalem. And it'll say they went up to Jerusalem even though the person who's saying that is already north of Jerusalem. You know, like we say in Michigan, we're, I'm going up north for the weekend. That's because we're down here in the south. I'm going, up, I'm going north. But when it says I'm going, I'm going up to Jerusalem, people say I'm going up to Jerusalem no matter where they are. And the reason is because Jerusalem is elevated. So it's not saying I'm going north. It's saying I'm going literally up. In fact, that explains in the Psalms why you have a whole grouping of Psalms that are called the Psalms, Songs of Ascent. Because they were songs that were sung by pilgrims who were going to the holy city as a pilgrimage, and they would sing these songs on the way there as they ascended. So the geography helps. D, interpret every biblical text in light of its culture. Modern-day thought and behavior are different from that of Bible times, and there are diff cultural differences between groups of people mentioned in Scripture. The Roman culture of Paul's dates is totally different than the Hebrew culture of Moses' day. It's important then to understand the culture behind any given text. So you go to the book of Ruth, eighth book in your Bible, Ruth, 
and you just got four chapters. It's, a, it's an amazing book. And Ruth, at the end of it, ends up marrying a guy named Boaz. And they end up being the grandparents of King David, the great-grandparents of King David. And God sets this whole thing up for Ruth and Boaz to be together, by the way, in a town called Bethlehem, the city of David. And you know, later is going to come Jesus through that very line. So that's why the book of Ruth is even in your Bible. Four chapters to just set that whole thing up. But the marriage of Ruth and Boaz is unusual because it's based upon something earlier in the Bible, in the law of Moses called Leverite marriage. The gist of it is this. If a woman is widowed, then the next of kin is supposed to take care of her. The law of Leverite marriage. And that, was, that ended up being Boaz. There was actually someone, if you read the story, who was closer so Boaz couldn't jump in even though he wanted to because he was fond of Ruth. He wanted to marry her. He had to go approach this other relative. This other relative said, no, count me out. <laughs> and so then, and so Ruth, uh, Boaz was able to marry her. But, you know, knowing that helps you see what's, what's happening here. So all of that, historical context, here's your first principle. A text cannot mean what it never meant. That is the greatest thing ever. That box is the greatest thing, okay? A passage cannot mean now what it never meant. So you don't get to make stuff up. You don't find esoteric meanings. It means today, guess what it means today? The same thing it meant then. And the way you get to what it meant then is you put it in its historical context. But secondly, it's literary context as well. In addition to the historical setting, interpretation is influenced by literary factors. Different literary types are interpreted differently. An apple a day keeps the doctor away is a proverb. It's a general truth. It's saying if you eat healthy, generally you'll, you'll be healthy. So we've got a whole book in our Bible, right, called Proverbs. And I did a series on it. And as I went through and preached that, as I'm interpreting these passages, I've got to know what a proverb is. And a proverb is a general truth. It's not a law. It's not a legal guarantee. If you take proverbs to be legal guarantees, you can get really messed up. Proverbs 22.6 says this, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, if that's a legal guarantee, that means if you do it right, they turn out right. Generally, that's true. And that's what the proverb is saying. But it's not always true. As a matter of fact, in Ezekiel chapter 18, Ezekiel 18 says, sometimes a righteous man will have a violent son and a violent man will have a righteous son. Sometimes it doesn't work that way. It doesn't mean that the Bible's wrong because it never intended to be a legal guarantee. It's a, it's a proverb. So, you interpret, A, every biblical text in light of its particular form. The Bible contains different forms of literature, poetry, narratives, proverbs, parables, letters. Each of these is to be interpreted accordingly. For example, narrative portions. Now, what's a narrative? It means it's telling a story. It's narrating. And a lot of your Bible is just that. Book of Acts is that. And it's describing the actions of other people. That's what narratives do. It's describing. It's just the narrator who wrote it is narrating what happened. But then you've got epistolary. That just means the letters, the epistles, like that Paul wrote, those often prescribe actions for others. So in Acts chapter 1, which is a narrative, it describes the fact that the disciples went to Jerusalem. It doesn't tell us to do that. On the other hand, you got Paul's letter to the Romans. That prescribes actions for us, like Romans 12.1, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to, to God. So the fatal mistake of our charismatic Pentecostal friends is that they don't get what we just said there about prescription and description. They take everything in the Bible as a prescription for what you're supposed to do. So everything the apostles did, we're supposed to do. Good luck with that. Raise people from the dead. I mean, I, I, mean, I got respect for the Pentecostal who at least give it a shot. But ain't nobody done it. Isn't that something? That nobody can get that done? There's not a single Pentecostal around who's able to raise somebody from the dead like Paul did, like Peter did. Not one. 
So they can say, yeah, but we heal people all day. No, I want to see a resurrection. Okay? Let's go, let's go, let's go big here. <clears throat> and nobody can do that. Because the Bible's often describing what they did, not prescribing to us. Second, interpret every biblical text in the light of its literary device. This involves the figures of speech. In normal human communication, we employ devices like figures of speech. We might say, my mouth is on fire because you've just tasted something very hot. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, I am the gate. Well, what's that mean? You know, I'm the entryway <clears throat> into eternal life, but it doesn't mean he's literally got hinges and he's right and, and swinging. None of, us, and none of us believe that. That's why normal interpretation is preferable to literal. You have things in the first part of your Bible. The Bible says Adam, King James says this, Adam knew his wife Eve. That's a euphemism for their marital intimacy. Or in the Old Testament, it'll say something like, uh, so-and-so sinned with a high hand. That means that, that, that was defiant. That's a way of saying they were defiant in their sinning before God. In the King James, there's actually one that says, he covered his shoes. That is a euphemism for um, he went to powder his nose, um, went to the restroom. So powder your nose, I'm using a euphemism to describe a euphemism. <laughs> but anyway, you've got these kinds of figures of speech. So bottom of page 73, here's your second principle. First one is a text cannot mean what it never meant. The second one is this, all texts are not alike. You've got 66 different books in the Bible, and some are of one type, some are of another. So you've got historical context, you've got literary context, and you've got grammatical context, top of page 74. The difference between the original language of a biblical book and the language of readers today creates more obstacles to interpretation, but these can be overcome by some rules. Interpret every biblical text in light of its original language. The Bible was written in Hebrew and Greek. Most of us don't know those, so it's necessary to have a good translation of the Bible that converts from those languages into English. NIV is a decent way to go for you. There are others as well. It's just the one we use here. One factor to bear in mind when interpreting the language of Scripture is that all languages are univocal. That, that's a word that means one voice. That is, a word can only mean one thing in a given context. Let's, let's say that again. A word can mean only one thing in a given context. If that were not the case, only one word would be required to construct an entire language because that could mean anything in any context. So you want to know what that word means in this particular context. Second, interpret each text in light of its larger logical units. All communication is propositional. That is, it's constructed in sentences. I'm speaking in sentences to you. You're processing it in your brain in sentences, propositions. That's true even of nonverbal communication, by the way. Uh, you know, if I, if, I, if, I go like, if I go like this with my shoulders, you guys are going to process that nonverbal communication like, I don't know, right? As a, but you're going to process it as a proposition, as a, as a sentence, even if, I don't, even if I don't say anything. That's the way our brains work. But those sentences are part of larger, a larger logical chain. You start with word, and then a phrase, and then a sentence, which fits in a paragraph, then in chapters and then in books of the Bible. So the context of a given word, a phrase, a sentence, a paragraph is dependent on those other larger units of which it's a part. Now, let me point something out to you that's important. One, I'm pointing out to you that it's 8.15, so if you have to go, because I got a little bit more, okay? If you have to go, it won't hurt my feelings. And if any of you are tuning me out on live stream, it won't hurt my feelings because I have no idea who you are. So. So, so uh, you know, one of the reasons that we like the, the NIV, but others do this as well, is because when you look at the NIV, the paragraphs are not set off by verses. The paragraphs are actually set off with multiple verses. And here's why that's important. Remember, if you can go back a little bit to grammar school, you remember what a paragraph's supposed to be? <laughs> it's supposed to be the beginning of a new thought. 
Now, you know, when you were writing, you had to write a long paper. I just finished today, 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 finally, my 203-page paper that I've been working on for the last three and a half months. Thank you. But we finally made it. And, and I'm like writing and, and, you know, and then you're doing the paragraphs and you're, you're having to think through all of that as you go through it. But back when I was in high school or certainly in junior high, I'm just making stuff up. And you probably did too, right? You're just, I mean, a paragraph. When am I supposed to start a new paragraph? And so you just probably be writing along and then you're like, I've been going a long time. I should probably start a, <laughs> start a new paragraph. But it's really supposed to have some logical flow to it, right? And it's supposed to start a new thought that contributes to the overall thing that you're, you're saying. And of course, that's what the Bible does. Now, what a lot of our English translations do, King James does this, a lot of them do, is they lay it out like every verse is indented. Every verse looks like its own paragraph. The problem with that then is you will tend visually to see that as if it's just set off like it's its own saying. But see, it's not. Everything fits into the larger context. The word, the sentence, and the paragraphs especially are important because they contain... And if you've ever paid attention to the parameters of a sermon... Like when I say turn to Acts chapter 2, as we did Sunday, at the top of your outline it tells you what passage we're considering. Last week it was Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 41. Well, why 37 to 41? I mean, I could have picked, you know, 36 to 42, except those aren't a paragraph. But 37 to 41 are a paragraph. They're a thought. Now, sometimes you might pick two paragraphs or three, and then make a point, a point, and a point, you know. But you don't just go right in the middle of a paragraph. And you don't just pick out, and he made the stars also. Like Jack Howes, you see, you see what I'm saying. So a, a Bible that's laid out that way helps you think in terms of thoughts, of paragraphs, and how they, and how they then fit together in the larger, larger context. So here's principle number three then. A text has only one meaning. You put it in its context, its grammatical context, and it only has one meaning. That word only means one thing in that particular context. This is why if you're involved in a Bible study where you got 10 people and they say, hey, let's open to the book of John and, and then Joseph, read the first five verses for me of chapter 10 and then Brad, read me the next five. But as you go through, after Joseph reads the first five, then we say, well, hey, what does that mean to you, Joseph? Those five verses. And then, you know, Brad reads his five, and we say, what does that mean to you? And other people can chime in as to what it means to them. You know, not to be unkind, but do we care what it means to Joseph or Brad? Especially Joseph and Brad. Do we care about what it means to them? <laughs> right? We don't care what it means to you. What we, mean, what we want to know is what it meant and what it means. It only has one meaning. It doesn't have a Joseph meaning and a Brad meaning and a Ken meaning. It has only one meaning. Now, note, because the Bible is composed of human elements, it's to be interpreted, as we've been seeing, as normal human communication. So the principles of interpretation listed above that I've just gone through, you can apply that to any human communication, not just the Bible. But the Bible does differ from other human communication in that, in addition to human authors, the Bible has one behind another author, the ultimate one, God. Since there is ultimately a single author of the Bible, here's what that means. Here's how God's authorship of the Bible matters. I mean, it matters for the reasons that we saw last week. <clears throat> Since it came from God, it can't have any errors. It has complete authority, all of that stuff. But for interpretive purposes, it means it has complete unity. If you don't have God behind the whole thing, and you've got these 40 different authors living at different times, you've got no hope to have a unified message. But the fact that you have God superintending it is what guarantees that they don't contradict each other. That means, number one, bottom of page 74, interpret difficult passages in light of those that are clear. If the Bible clearly teaches a doctrine in one passage, another passage can't contradict it. If you understand the meaning of a clear passage, it helps you interpret a difficult one because you already know what that difficult one cannot mean. And I gave you an example of that last week. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, verses John chapter 5, and verse 24. And then finally, page 75, 
interpret each book in light of the overall biblical context. We've already noted that each passage has to be interpreted in those larger logical units. Word, sentence, paragraph, book. Since the whole of the Bible has but one author, the largest logical unit is really the entire Bible. And so overall biblical content Context refers to content and time. So stay with me for a couple more minutes. So I'm not going to draw it on here, uh, but you should think about this as a series of concentric circles. You know, a small circle, then another one, another one, another one. The smallest circle would be the word, a word. The next circle that that word's contained in would be what? Sentence. The next larger circle would be a paragraph. The next larger circle would be a chapter or, or the book that it's contained in. And then the largest circle on the outside would be the whole Bible. That book is contained within the body of the whole Bible that God wrote. And so that book needs to be interpreted in light of what the rest of the Bible says. That's what we're saying. And if you do that, you'll never find a contradiction because God is the one behind it. Last principle, then, is the Bible communicates a unified message. You follow those four principles, you'll be in good shape.